The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. One of the most notorious fires in the history of our nation happened in 1871 in Chicago. It's known as the Great Chicago Fire. And um, I think we even have a, a painting of it. It just tries to grasp what an inferno it was, the Chicago fire. It, it um, lasted, it was October 8th, and it lasted for a couple days. And let me just actually show you, there's a couple historic photos we found of what this fire did. I think we have a couple of those photos. You can go pull that up. Um, just check this out and just try and see. This is an actual photo from uh, almost uh, 151 years ago. You can see just whole blocks just leveled and just the stone facade of some buildings just standing. I think we have a couple more photos. You have another photo. Okay, here's like a before and after of one of the larger buildings in the city. And afterwards, you can see it's just, it's just rubble. Uh, I think we've got one more, a city block. Here on the left is a city block what it looked like. You had some, uh, at the time, I mean, uh, a five-story building was a monster, and uh, you can see just leveled down to the ground. And let me just read you some stats about the, uh, the, old Ch- the Great Chicago Fire from 1871. The Great Chicago Fire, um, it estimated that 300 people died is the estimate in that fire. It burned down, it leveled, this is hard to get in our brains, 17,000 buildings and structures. Can you imagine that? I mean, our entire period, if like one building burns to the ground, it makes headlines. And uh, thanks to our our firefighters and those men and women that give their lives to protect us. Um, But this fire, it leveled 17,000 structures. They estimate that at the end of that two days, um, October 8th and then into 9th and 10th, the end of that 48, 72 hours, that something like 100,000 people in Chicago were homeless. That's a third of the entire population. Um, they, they said um, that trying to de- describe what it was like, what happened after that is that there was a lawlessness, looting happened, and it was just, mar- they had to declare formally martial law in Chicago for a period of time before they could pull things around. People who described what it was like being there when the fire was raging, they described it like this. I mean, it was like the perfect scenario it was an extremely dry season that year. They only got a quarter of the rainfall. They usually do it was very dry and strong winds uh, picked up. So when the fire started, the wind swept it through the entire city. And they said the winds were so strong that it would sweep up these flames into a vortex. So it would be like these flaming tornadoes swirling through the city and they were sending flaming debris out. So you can imagine a tornado that's sending debris out. Now imagine a flaming tornado sending flaming debris, lighting fires, more fires all over the city. And they described, uh, they described those tornadoes. I want to get this right. They called them fire devils as they were spinning up, terrorizing the city, sending fiery debris in every direction. It was unbelievable, this fire. Now, a couple interesting things since then. Uh, what makes this fire so memorable is the legend on how it started. The legend of where it started, it's pretty much known where 
It was in the O'Leary's barn. But the legend of actually what started the fire in this barn is that Mrs. O'Leary was milking her cow and the cow kicked over a lantern. The lantern lighted, lit the barn on fire and then it spread through the entire city. And so for generations, Mrs. O'Leary and her cow have been villainized as the ones that started this fire, even though that was never conclusive, to the degree that in 1997, so what is that, uh, a little over 30 years ago, 1997, they passed a law, the city of Chicago, formally, formally exonerating Mrs. O'Leary and her cow, made it official. They did not do it, okay? Went down in the record books. Unfortunately, Mrs. O'Leary died in 1895, so she never heard about that. But uh, they formally exonerated them. And part of that is because new evidence has have arisen to what started the, the fire in that barn. There is one guy by the name of Louis Cohen, Cohen that when he died in the early 1940s, he actually in his will confessed to starting the fire in the barn. And actually, he was uh, said that he was actually gambling. He was 18 years old. There's some other teenagers. They were gambling in that fire, including the O'Leary's son. They were in there. And according to him, Mrs. O'Leary came in to shoo them out. And as they ran out, they kicked the lantern over. And so he donated some of his money because he felt really bad. He'd been carrying that with him for so long, but he actually confessed it. But some are not even convinced. And some scientists actually believe that what happened that night is that there was a meteor shower and a meteorite hit that barn and lit it on fire. And that spread throughout the entire city. The legend continues. The mystery continues. But this much we know. It was in the barn. And it was one small little spark, probably a household lantern that were probably lit, hundreds of thousands of them, probably lit all through the city. And I want you to go back. I want you to put yourself there. Days after the great Chicago fire, one of the, one of the, the time top 10 largest, one of the top 10 largest cities in our nation, just decimated. And I want you to go back if you're Mrs. O'Leary and Let's say it was the cow or the teenagers, but it was that lantern. And I want you to go back, Mrs. Leary, O'Leary, thinking about that moment that she lit that lantern. Maybe an innocent little match. And she maybe opened the little door and put it inside the little glass and closed it up and just contained, seemingly contained, in that lantern was one little spark but that spark would cost 300 lives and destroy the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. But how innocent that little lantern seemed to be, but containing a whole world of hurt. In the book of James, that is the exact illustration that the author uses about our words. They seem so small, but they can start a raging inferno of so much pain and so much destruction. And he warns us, we truly underestimate the power of our words. We can't even imagine the power of our words. 
But as always, if words can be that powerful for evil, then God can redeem them for even greater power for good, right? So that leaves us with a question. How do we handle? How do we steward? How do we manage? How do we leverage our words? Not for destruction, but for life-giving power. James is going to address that. I want you to open to James chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 3. James chapter 3, if you have a Bible or Bible app, James is towards the back of the Bible, the later part of the New Testament. James chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Let's see what he has to say. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Now pause with me there for a second. Um, listen to these two illustrations, and this is a really beautiful passage. It's, it, I mean, it's very powerful. It's, you just read through it, and it's just impacting very easily because he's layering these illustrations on top of, of each other, and they're very impactful. The first illustration, he says, I want you to imagine a horse, and we talked about this a little bit last week in part one. The power of a horse it's the, all the power of that horse, its whole power is steered by one little part, his mouth. The horse, there's a small part, a bit that's put into the mouth of a horse, and that, its mouth is what the, the, the rider uses to steer the entire horse. So all of that, that horse's power, whether it's pulling something, whether it's galloping, running, walking, whatever it is, whatever that horse is doing, and all of its power is steered by one small part of its mouth. He says, similarly, I want you to imagine a ship Ships are large. And in, in James' day, there was, um, in the first century, there were many very mighty ships. Nothing in comparison to the types of ships that we have today. But whether they're ancient ships or modern ships, there's some part of it in the back that's driving it. In the ancient ships, it would be a rudder, a very small part of the ship to, to the scale of this entire ship. And think about the, the sails being fully up and the wind blowing into the sails and, and driving it through choppy, stormy seas with the power of those waves. And as the captain is steering that ship back and forth, what is, it, what is the part of the ship that is guiding the direction it's going? He says, it's just a small little rudder that's steering the ship one way or steering the ship another way. He's making a very clear, hard-hitting point. A human's life is steered. Your life, my life, the lives of his ancient audience here and every person who's read this in between and every human alive. There's a, it's very clear. Our lives are steered. You can chart the course and watch the course of our lives by a very, very small part of our lives, our words. But he's going to bring on another illustration. And here's what this next illustration is going to talk about. It's not just 
our lives that our words affect. And in fact, that's probably pretty easy for us and every audience who's read this to accept. It's probably not that hard to say, yeah, man, boy, I have really gotten myself in trouble with my words. I've, I've torpedoed relationships. I've missed opportunities. I've blown it at times because of words that I've said. I've seen how my words have affected my life. But it's this next part that often we dismiss, ignore, or try to debate. Look at what he says next. Let's pick it up in verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Once again, he's taking something small that causes something large. But instead of just talking about how, the, how our tongues and our words, how they steer our lives, now he's saying, but it's more than that. Our tongues are like a small spark, still something that seems small, but that ember floats into an entire forest and it can start a raging fire all around us. See, our words don't just steer our lives. Our words affect people around us to a much greater degree than we're typically usually willing to admit. And he uses a fire, a wildfire, to describe it. In other words, you could put it like this. It's not just the O'Leary's that were affected by that lantern tipping over. The O'Leary's didn't just live the rest of their life like, oh man, my house burned down. We should be more careful with our lanterns. It was the O'Leary's lantern, the O'Leary's barn that lit up into fire, but it affected the entire city beyond what they could have imagined is the effect of that small fire. And James is saying, it's not just us that's affected. It's everyone around us that's affected by our words. Let's take this one step deeper. Let's, I want you to keep going. Let's look at what he says about a fire in verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. He's saying, yeah, the tongue is very small. Our words are very small, but our words steer our entire lives. They can set on fire our entire lives and we're like a person running on fire, lighting other things on fire all around us. Our words affect and can start an inferno that, that affects the people all around us. That is the power of the words. And then he says this. He says, our words are set on fire by hell. Now, let's not skip over that. That should stop us in our tracks because he just took this to another level. There are two different ancient Greek words used that we, in the New Testament that we translate as the word hell. The first one is probably more familiar to us as a modern audience. The first one is the word Hades. That's one that's used in Greek mythology. We probably have heard that word before. That is one of the words used to describe that we then translate hell in the New Testament. About half of them are uh, behind that word. The English word hell is that word Hades. The other half, and it's this one in this text, 
is the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna is describing a geographical place, spot, outside of Jerusalem. It is a spot now known as uh, the Hinnom Valley. Now we have a map of uh, modern Jerusalem. Let's go ahead and pull that map up. Okay, now what you can see, if you look over here at the top, I'm just going to travel around here. Over here at the top, right here, that is the temple. You see the, the temple mount. And then just on the other side of that tree line coming all the way around right here is a valley. That valley all around there, that is the uh, Kidron Valley. That means on the other side of the Kidron Valley, this whole mountain up here, that's the Mount of Olives. And the way that it works is Jerusalem comes like in a peninsula down on this side, the geography goes, it goes up in altitude so that the temple is sitting on the highest part of like Mount Zion. But down here, you see this is the other valley that comes around and meets the Kidron Valley, and it's carving out like, like a peninsula down to a point. And so the temple was built at the top, David's built his palace a little lower, and then you have the city of David going down to the end of the, of the peninsula. This valley down here on the bottom that meets up with the Kidron Valley, this valley right here, that is called the Hinnom Valley or what it was called in ancient times, Gehenna. Now here's what's so significant about this, about this valley, the Hinnom Valley, is that this is where they burned trash and refuse. And so there was this perpetual, like nauseous fume coming up from that part of the valley of, uh, of Hinnom or the, or the uh, Gehenna Valley. But it's also a very notorious place because some of the kings in Jerusalem, some that were from the line of David, this is many hundreds of years after David and Solomon, before they were taken into exile, and then they came back with Ezra and Nehemiah, there were some kings in there that were extraordinarily wicked. I mean, really, really bad. These are descendants of David, but they were really, really bad. And instead of leading God's people, towards God and leading them in that direction. They adopted some of the most dark, satanic religious practices of some of the other religions in the surrounding area. In particular, there was a couple of them, and one especially in particular, that began worshiping the really, really dark and satanic false god called Molech. And what Molech, this false god, demanded was human sacrifice, child sacrifice. And this king set up an altar down in this Hinnom Valley, in this Gehenna Valley, set up an altar and offered his children, a child, as a burned offering before Molech. So I want you to just get that very graphic picture. Because when this generation, that ancient generation, heard the word Gehenna, which is right here, it, it had become a euphemism for hell itself. It was, the air itself was a, almost like a poison. It reminded of, of destroying lives under a dark, satanic directive. I say that because I want us to feel the full force of what James is saying here. A lot of times in our modern um, era, we treat the word hell like a caricature. 
We treat it like, you know, a cartoon, meaning bad. And the things of darkness and the devil and demons, we treat it like it's just kind of a, a joke or a punchline. But I want you to feel the full force from this text. Because there is an enemy. There is a being that is the devil, that is an enemy. There are demons, they are real. This is what the Bible tells us. And what it says is they want to maim, destroy, they want to oppress, they want to strangle out any life or any love, they want to absolutely tear apart. And what he's saying is, the enemy uses our words to do that. And he uses very graphic image, imagery to get our attention. That's how powerful our words are. Here's what this text is saying, if we were just to put it in one central big idea. What is, this, what is James 3 telling us? Well, it says this, our words are more powerful than we imagine. Words are more powerful than we imagine. See, a lot of times we treat words as if it's just like, ah, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And so we, we use that to kind of brush off hurtful language as if it doesn't hurt, as if um, bullying or words spoken over our lives, as if they don't echo into our lives on repeat, trying to break down a health, healthy image of who we are. And so a lot of times we brush off words and in the same way we brush off our own words. We just think our words, ah, they're just, I don't really think about it much. I just kind of go through my day and I just kind of toss out words. I don't actually think about the words I'm saying to my family, to my coworkers, to my friends, uh, over text message, over email, on social media. Words, they just come out. It's just a part of life. It's just this reflex of life and they just kind of come out and, uh, you know, I try to just not do anything too bad. And then if I, if I make a mistake, I mean, we're, what are words? They're just empty. They just kind of go, you can't see them, you can't grab them, they just kind of go out and, and you know, it, it's, it, they're just little things, right? Words are just small things every day that I'm, I'm bringing out by the thousands. I'm pumping them out by the thousands every day and they're just little things. And then accidentally we say something that hurts someone with our words and often we just are very dismissive at the power of those hurtful words and we say things like, ah, oh, you know, my bad, I, I, was, I was stressed. You know, you don't understand, I'm under a lot of stress right now. And so like, I, if I blurted that out, look, my, my bad, my bad. You know, I, I, you don't understand, uh, I mean, I was just in a bad mood or I'm going through a hard time or well, you made me angry, that's why I said those words and I blew my top. Or maybe we say to a friend after just spewing out hundreds or thousands of angry words about another person, we just dismiss the power of all of those words saying, oh, thank you, I just needed someone to vent to. Or immediately we're on social media. Another sermon in and of itself, right? And we just rip off words with so much ease, because it feels like there's a whole device in between us and a real live human being on the other end. And so in a way that feels safe and anonymous, 
We use strong words we wouldn't dream of using if we were flesh and blood in front of that person, watching their face drop, watching their, their face get red with anger and beads of sweat come down, or watching their shoulders slump in insecurity as those words sting. But no, we're, we're anonymously away from the impact of all of those words. So we rip off those words so quickly, not caring who we eviscerate along the way, not caring what division and divisiveness we're stirring up, not caring what sparks we're sending in what city around the world, just sending those like fire devils. We just dismiss our words. We can't imagine the power of words. Well, what does the Bible say about words? It's not just the book of James. Can you pause with me and think with me about the power of and the centrality of words in the creation that God made. Page one of the Bible. There was a nothing, formless void of nothingness. It wasn't even a vacuum. It was nothing. And then God spoke some words. And the power of God's words burst the universe into existence. Galaxies with billions of stars exploded into existence, each with their own system orbiting around them. And as he's speaking everything into existence, everything we've known, everything we've thought of, every scientific law, everything we've discovered, every distant creature and distant galaxy and distant world, everything we've ever imagined and beyond, he's speaking by his words into existence and he gets to the crescendo and he speaks one aspect of his creation into existence. They said, I'm uniquely making this one little part of all the galaxies and all the solar systems and all the planets, there's one creature on that planet of all the living creatures that I'm making in my image. And he makes man and woman in his image. And if that's all we had is Genesis 1, what would we know about ourselves? is that we're made in the image of God. And, and that means a whole lot. And that gets developed all through the Bible. But what does that mean in just Genesis 1? Like, what's the foundation? We don't know a whole ton about God yet out of just Genesis 1. But we know he creates, and he creates with his words. And so he makes humanity in his, exist in his image. Now think about that for a second. With the life that we know of, What's distinct about humanity? There are animals that are larger than us, right? And smaller. A lot of animals that are larger. Way larger. There are animals that are weaker than us, animals that are stronger than us. There are some animals that are way stronger than us. There are animals that are more agile than us. Plenty. There are animals that are faster than us. So many animals are faster than us. There are many animals that live way longer than us. There's one shark, they're called the Greenland shark, that they believe may, uh, they've documented almost 400 years old. 
And scientists believe that that shark may be able to live up to 500 years old. And that's just, that's a sea creature. We're not even talking about trees and other inanimate forms of life that live way longer than us. Some trees into the, beyond a thousand years old still alive. There are animals that are stronger, faster, that are quicker, that are older, that are bigger. But no animal is even close to as sophisticated as humanity is in how we communicate. Humans, like God, use words. He created with 10 words, and then he established his law with 10 words, the 10 commandments, guiding us how we're to live. And had we walked in those 10 words, everything would have been fine, but in Genesis chapter 3, Humanity falls into sin. And do you know how that entire episode starts? An animal is using words. And listen to what the words were. His opening line, did God really say? The temptation started by questioning God's words. It was through those words that Adam and Eve were tempted and fell. And then it was humanity fallen at one particularly bad moment. A few pages later in book of Genesis, they came together to climb their way to heaven in a tower. And God said, no, I'm not going to do this with humanity like this. They are going to destroy themselves and the earth. And so he had to divide all of humanity. And he did it one simple, easy way by dividing their words, their languages. They no longer understood. And he turned their words into Babel at the tower. Of Babel, divided humanity with words. As humanity has struggled under the oppression of sin in all of our lives, we have an enemy, an adversary, and remember what the enemy, the devil, is called. He's called the father of lies. It's because his words are crooked. He doesn't breathe out true words. He's the father of spinning up lying words. He's called the accuser of the brothers and sisters. He uses words that accuse us, that bring shame on us. In fact, the word devil itself actually means slanderer. He has words that he levels against us. So central were words to create creation, and so central are words to try and destroy it. But God's not going to let his world be destroyed, is he? He's too powerful, he's too holy, and he's too loving. And so he does what is still so hard to even imagine an expression of love. The Son of God comes down to earth. He is the full expression of God bodily. He's fully God and fully man here, the Son of God. And we get to see and hear what God is like. We get to experience his love. We get to witness his teaching. We get to witness his holiness. We get to see his sacrifice on the cross and being risen from the dead. And this full revelation embodied in Jesus, one of his names is the Word. He is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, John 1.1. Almost like a new creation, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God and was God. It's the Word. Jesus is the full revelation of the Word. It's the Word that comes to save us. And when he rises again from the dead, He sends his disciples, says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to use your words to spread the good news. And they huddle together in an upper room. 
And he's going to empower them with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes down on them. And it says they looked at each other and above their heads were flames like a tongue of fire because it was anointing their words. And the very first thing the church did is they walked out of that upper room and they spoke words, miraculous words. Jerusalem jam-packed with people from every place, every language known was gathered in Jerusalem for the Pentecost and they started preaching. And people are saying, I can't believe it. They're not just speaking in Hebrew. Like I can understand, that's not just Aramaic. I can hear that from my language and I'm from Africa and this one's from Asia and this one's from Europe. And they're hearing them in their own language. And God is reversing Babel in that moment, reunifying all of humanity through these words spoken about the word, Jesus. He says, now you will go out and be my witnesses. And Romans, Romans uh, says, how are they to hear unless someone goes and preaches? How are they to hear the gospel? It has to be spoken. How beautiful are the feet that are taking that message, the words, out. And it says, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The gospel goes out. The central mission of the church is to preach using words about the gospel, Jesus, the word. And that word, the Holy Spirit uses to stir up faith. And we keep faithfully sending out these words of life, of the gospel in every sector of our lives until one day, Jesus, the great word returns. And when he returns, he's described as a conquering king leading the armies of heaven. And he's described as having a weapon and his weapon is a sword. And the sword is coming where? Out of his mouth because it's his words of truth that he will judge humanity. Do you see how powerful words are? Do you see how central they are to the story? That's the power of words. Christian, if we know our story, how could we possibly be so dismissive about words? You've uniquely been given. Creature, among the other creatures on this planet, you have been given words to steward, and he's intending to use those words and they will either be used to start a fiery inferno of death and destruction, leveling things in your path, or you can leverage your words for life and the gospel. You say, help me, how do I do this? James, he told us. He told us exactly what to do. He told us three things. He says words can steer our lives. That's what he said. It's like a bit or a rudder. Your words steer your life. So here's what this means. Your words are right now steering your marriage. You want to trace the course of your marriage? Look at your words. Are your words about your spouse a punchline? Are they absent? Are they embittered? Or is he anointing you and empowering you, the Holy Spirit inside of you, to breathe out the words of healing that they need in their soul and putting you in close proximity and anointing you and using your words 
to bring healing to your spouse. You know the most powerful words sometimes? I love you. You know what else? I'm sorry. And not dismissing words as if they're not powerful because that's unbiblical and it's sin. If you really believe this, you'll think over all your words to your spouse and maybe if you really have the courage, ask them what words you've said to them that have been hurtful. How about our, with our kids? Our kids are wet cement. The words we speak over them are imprinting them. Are they words of life? Or are they words being used to destroy? You know what some of the most powerful words you can say? I love you and I'm sorry. The power of words. How about your words in friendships? How about your words at work? How about your words on social media? Are they angry or are they life-giving? Are they dividing or are they unifying? How about are your words fruit-bearing? Are they steering your life towards bearing fruit or steering your life towards dividing and, and self-centered? What's the chief thing your words are evangelizing? about Jesus or about your opinions, your theories, your politics, your ideas, your soapbox, or are you leveraging words for Jesus? Here's the second thing it says. Words can be used by the enemy. Words are used to distract. That's what he says. They're set on fire by hell. Words can be used by the enemy to destroy. They can be used to distract. They can be used to divide. Are your words dividing words? Are these gossiping words dividing friendships and changing people's opinions of others at work? Are they gossipy dividing words at work? Are they gossipy dividing words at church? Because heaven forbid any one of us is caught dividing the bride of Jesus Christ. Are your words being used to unify in life-giving? How about at your last church? Were your words used to give life and to unify or to divide? Words steer our lives. Words can be used by the enemy. But here's what this says. Words can be controlled. Words can be controlled. He's describing them like a rudder. He's describing them like a bit. In other words, no Christian can say, ah, I just don't have a filter. No, nah, I'm sorry. No, we're recapturing the power of words and leveraging them. And so under the power of the Holy Spirit, when we take a humble posture of God, I can't do it, but Holy Spirit, teach me Teach me to control my words and leverage them for good. We should expect that work of the indwelling Holy Spirit to be changing our ability to use our words to be life-giving, not destructive. 
In fact, that's, what we, that's why James, we talked about this last week, that's why James started where he did. He said, if you want to learn to control your words, start by the words you're taking in. Because a lot of times, the reason it's so hard to control our words is that the words we're taking in are so polluting our minds and our hearts. It's making us angry and divided and hopeless and, 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 and seeing things as polarized rather than taking in and drinking deeply of the true words of God. So those words that you're taking in, if it's not producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, if it's not producing the fruit that the Spirit produces, if it's not producing love but hate, if it's not producing peace but fear, if it's not producing kindness but aggression, and it's not, if it's not um, producing self-control but uncontrollably dividing, get that out of your life and drink in the pure word of God. Recapture the power of words in your life. Here's how we're, we're going to Here's how I want to challenge us to end today. Um, I want you to grab that note card that was on your seat. If you're at Cooper City, there was one on your seat here. There's a note card on your seat. Um, or you can grab a, a note on your phone or your tablet. Although, don't check your text messages when you open your phone, okay? This is the danger, all right? Grab a note card. Here's what I want you to do. There, one of the best ways to reshape our words is taking the word into our lives. I want to show you two verses up here on the screen. And I want you to pick one of these two verses, and I want you to right now, write it down. Pick one. And you're going to write it down, and you're going to memorize it this week. It's Proverbs 17.27 or Proverbs 18.21. Here's what 17.27 says. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Or write this one down, Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So take a second, pick one of those. I want you to write now in your seat, write that down, pick one. You're going to carry that note card in your pocket, or you're going to put it on your dashboard, or put it in your wallet or your purse. And I want you to take some time this week, every day, I want you to say that word. I want you to take it phrase by phrase. Just try and say one phrase. Try to say the next one. And I want you to slowly memorize it and hide it in your hearts. Hide his word in your heart that it would shape your words. You know, some of us may hear this and say, you know, if I'm honest, I hear this. It's hard to not feel discouraged because I haven't done a good job of this in my life. And if I'm honest, I look behind me and there's scorched earth. But your story's never done. Do you know that? You know, um, in Chicago, on the site of the O'Leary's barn, they built the Chicago Fire Department training facility. And so decades firefighters have been built on that site. In fact, uh, they intentionally rebuilt Chicago and by um, very intentionally by the 1890s, 
It was the second largest city in America because even though it was scorched earth, they could rebuild it with intentionality. And it became, because they could rebuild the infrastructure, it became the site of the first skyscrapers. And they designed a style of buildings that shaped and changed architecture throughout the world. Man, if you've had a past of having destructive words, God can take that and rebuild on those lessons that you've learned. Can rebuild a life-giving nature and maybe you can pass on the lessons you've learned to your children and their children and their children and their children. And maybe you can have a lineage that knows the power of words. And who could do something that great? Well, the word can. I want to end with this. There's this little chapter in the book of Jeremiah, I think it's 36. And Jeremiah, in the midst of all of this wicked, the wickedness of Jerusalem, and God says, I have a word for me, thus saith the Lord. And he writes down God's words on a leather scroll. And he says to his servant, because Jeremiah had been, been so outcast, he couldn't even read it. He gave it to his servant and said, go read this to all the people. And he read it to all the people. And the king's officials of this wicked king heard this scroll read. And they, they took the scroll and they read it. And they were horrified that the king is not going to like this. And they took this scroll and they took it to the king. And they said, he said, I want to hear it. What are these words saying? These words that are supposedly from God. And they started reading it. And as they were reading it, do you know what he did? The king... He walked over and he took a knife and he pierced through the leather on the scroll. And he'd read a section of it and he'd stripe it down and take that piece of the scroll and throw it in the fire. And they'd read another section and he pierced the word of God and striped it down and took it and threw it in the fire. And he pierced it again and striped it and threw it in the fire until he had consumed the whole word of God on that scroll. And it was burned to a crisp, lost. But you know what God did? He said to Jeremiah, write it again. And this time, I'm going to add some to it. Why did God put this little story embedded in the book of Jeremiah? Because that's what the true word of God would come to do. The word of God in flesh pierced and striped and consumed by the wrath of God, but God would make it come back to life. Again, Jesus rose again from the dead in such victory and power, defeating sin and death itself. That is the word of God. It's unstoppable and his spirit is in you. Now, Christian, go use your words under the power of the Holy Spirit for life and not for death. Let's go to the Lord. Let's go to the great word. Let's go to Jesus in prayer. Jesus, we confess our sins. We confess to you that we've used our, our words for death, not for life. And that you paid the punishment for that. I pray for repentance, transformation. Maybe some of you are here and you're ready to say, look, I want, I know that I'm a sinner. I need Jesus to pay for my sins, past, present, and future, once and for all. I want to accept Jesus as my Savior. And if you want to take that step of faith, let me lead you in a prayer, just simply right there in your seat, quietly to before the Lord, say, Jesus, I surrender to you. 
I make you my King and my Lord. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that was your prayer just then, Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus for the first time, we want to know about that. Maybe you're watching online. I want you to go to cityrev.org slash faith. Grab your phone. If you're watching online, if you're here, you can do that as well. It's going to ask you a couple questions because we're going to send you the word of God. We're going to send you a Bible as you can begin this, this journey with the Lord. If you're here, you want a Bible today, just take your Get Connected card over to guest services. We'll put a Bible in your hands today as you're beginning this journey. Church, we're going to remember what the great word, the word of the Lord, who was with God and was God. We're going to remember what Jesus did on our behalf, how he let his body be pierced and striped and consumed by the wrath of God for us. That is how much he loves us. But he rose again in power and offered salvation to us. Can we stand and celebrate the incredible love of God? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.